0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Creating Gauge, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors, and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Julie Badley. Julie is one of the UK's most experienced female business leaders, having held numerous executive and non-executive positions on the boards of many well-known FTSE 100 and FTSE 250 companies, over the last 20 years. Julie is currently non-executive director of Ubiquity PLC and senior independent director of Marshall of Cambridge. In addition to these roles, she has recently established the Hughes Hall Centre for Climate Change Engagement at Cambridge University, something we discuss in today's show. Before moving into her portfolio career, Julie was a partner at Accenture, then Executive Director at The Woolwich, and has been on the boards of Harvey Nash, Greggs, and the Department of Health, to name but a few. I was introduced to Julie by a former guest of the show, Harry Gaskell, who worked for Julie before she left consulting. Given her wealth of experience and current area of focus, he thought she would make an excellent guest for the show, and he was certainly right about that. Today's episode is rather different to some of my other conversations. And instead of talking about Julie's career, we focus on an important topic that Julie is hugely passionate about and one that will be critical for consultants and their clients over the coming years. And that is climate change. In addition to her non-executive roles, Julie is currently leading a series of initiatives with investors, scientists, and advisors to help board chairs and non-executive directors recognize the impact that climate change is going to have on their businesses and the importance of doing their part to reduce the environmental impact of their businesses on the planet. With her substantial board-level experience, Julie brings a pragmatic business lens to the climate change conversation and in this episode we go into huge detail about why tackling climate change is a sound strategic business decision and why you as a consultant should be focusing on this as an offering for your clients. Our conversation really opened my eyes to some of the challenges that businesses are facing when it comes to climate change, and how consultants can and should be looking to support their clients with this, both to help the planet, but also to help their profits. I found this conversation fascinating, and I know you are going to get a ton from what Julie has to say. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Julie (music) Badley. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm really looking forward to this because I know from our, our catch up before, we're going to cover some topics that I haven't touched on with any of my guests before, which is always exciting for me. But I want to to start for maybe those who don't know you so well to find out actually your a bit about your career, how you got to where you are today, and and I think also how you know Harry because for my listeners benefit, he, Harry Gaskell at UI, was the one who introduced us
1: certainly was. Well, we could start with how I met Harry, actually, because it it really is the beginning of the journey to get to where I am now, I suppose. I built my own consultancy in the 80s. For most most of your listeners, they weren't been born at that point, but nevertheless, we do go back that far. And sold it after five years to an organization called SAMA, which Harry was working for. So he came into the business that I was then running. We combined the two businesses and worked together for quite some time, which was brilliant, really brilliant, and we've kept in touch ever since, as have I kept in touch with a lot of the people who worked in that consultancy. So we were all together in the 80s, but we still see each other, and they are all in amazing jobs all over the world, actually, which is a very exciting part of building your own business when people can go on to do great things, and many are still in consulting in one form or another. So the journey then moved on. I was a partner at Accenture. I went into Accenture and took on what was called the change management practice and eventually was running that for Europe. So we had about 750 consultants in that practice and then took a bit of a break and found myself on the main board of what was called then the Woolwich, um, subsequently bought by Barclays. So that was my executive role. So moving from consulting into banking, I was in charge of IT, HR, and the insurance businesses, so quite a big shift. And when Barclays took us over, I decided I didn't want to lead the integration project, which was something that they rather wanted me to do, but it's quite a big challenge to do that from the inside, I think. And so I started the portfolio career that I now have.
0: Fantastic. And we'll dig into your portfolio career and and what you're now doing, because there's some really interesting parts in that piece of the story. Just a quick one on what you just said there, because it it interests me in that I've met other consulting entrepreneurs who, and like you you made the point, when it's your business, you have the freedom to do largely what you want with it. Was there any adjustment for you there having to selling your own business and then going into Accenture as it was at the time, which was much bigger, much, I can only imagine much more corporate, much more structure. Was that a challenge or was it just a natural transition for you?
1: No, it was a challenge. I mean, I think it was a two-step challenge because our own business was, I mean, we'll we'll talk later about what I see as being the great inflection point today, that the great inflection point at the time when I started my business was, believe it or not, Computers in 1982 were mainframe computers in basements. Computers, during the time I had my own business, before I sold it, moved into being the backbone of, certainly the back office of of companies and was on the desktop. But those of you who were around at the time will remember that it was on the desktop with sort of green capital letters on the screen and no image so we recognized as a business and i think we were very early to recognize this that there was an, an inflection point which was how do businesses change to accommodate and make the most of this technology you know do they ch- how they, do they change their processes how do they sell the, the changes to their staff how do they train and implement these big it systems so it was a, a sort of brand new consulting service if you like when we sold the business, we sold it to a systems implementer, so that was quite a big shift because they had their focus was on the technology, our focus was really on the people, and also we became part of a much bigger outfit. It was French-owned, and so that brought with it a lot of cultural change. So by the time I went to Accenture, I'd already been in a pretty big organization. But then Accenture, of course, in those days, and it was Anderson Consulting, of course, at the time, had a methodology for everything. So, whereas we were sort of making it up as we went along and developing some quite exciting sort of approaches to how you deliver change in business, Accenture wanted everything to be codified because they wanted to be able to have armies of people mm-hmm. making that, that change. Rightly. I mean, it's it's in not in any way a criticism. It was just a, a different modus operandi for me. But I loved it. I absolutely loved my time at Anderson Consulting. Uh, being a partner in one of those firms is a huge privilege. And it was really exciting because we were able to take the things that we'd been building and inventing. And Harry came and joined me there, actually, at Anderson. We were able to take those things and actually make them available to just a hugely wider range of clients and consultants. So we got the best of both worlds, really. It was very good.
0: We will move on very shortly to the, you mentioned around that, the great inflection point we're now facing. Right, Something you, as you were talking, triggered in my mind, which was, I know when I spoke to Harry, he mentioned that when he was working for you, he, he was able to go and launch a consulting offering as part of your business. And when I asked him about that, from his perspective, he, you know, he said at 23, well, you don't know how hard it's going to be. You just go off and you think you can do it. I'd be, I appreciate it. We're going back a little while here, but I'd be fascinated what it was that you saw that made you confident that Harry could take that consulting offering and run with it.
1: Well, that's that's really interesting because, of course, I had to, I had to feel confident that I could run with it first mm. or, or alongside. I mean, we when we started the business it was really more sort of technical writing training and mm. then we we grew it out into this much wider offer and some like with any change in a in a business some of our consultants accepted it much more readily than others found it much more a na- much more natural transition harry is very very bright and very streetwise and very commercial and he just took to it like a duck to water as did three, four, five others that we had sort of at the top of the business. And we did it together. You know, it wasn't, mm. a you didn't just send a 23-year-old out, you know, what well, we did a few occasionally, but, <laughs> 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 um, but we had our first big contract with ICI, which was on, a, it was one of the first SAP implementations ever in the UK in the days when it was still, everything was written in German. And the contract was 250,000, which doesn't sound huge today, but actually in 1986, it was big, and we didn't really know anything about SAP or accounting, but we did know that we could create an offer and facilitate a discussion with a client that would draw out the best of their expertise. They knew about SAP, they knew about accounting, we knew about how to almost sell that offer into the business, and we learned to an extent as we went, but um, it worked brilliantly. And then, of course, you can transfer that experience to the next client. So I think when you start anything that's new, you've got to be brave. I mean, it's all consulting work. Is, I think you have to be pretty brave because you've got to walk into a room full of people and actually persuade them of something often that, you know, is coming from your skill set rather than theirs. But when you're launching a new service, I think you really do have to be quite, quite courageous but it's very rewarding when you get it right.
0: Yeah. And really interesting to hear about. And we might come back to that if we have time, because I'm intrigued about where you said you did send the 23 year old off on their own. And for me, the, the, the interest here is Harry, obviously being a former guest, is it's interesting to find out about him. But I know for, for my younger listeners who, particularly in some of the bigger firms where at 23, they, you know, they may meet junior clients, actually understanding where others have been able to go out and, work as part of the leadership team of building a business, I think is phenomenally interesting for them. But I, I want to park that because I, I'm very keen to actually talk about what I, I take as your great inflection point, and, and that is climate change. And I know this is something that and we'll, we will talk about all of the the journey you've been on through your career, but in this latter part of your career, I know it's become something you, f- you focus very heavily on. Before actually going into to why it's important, because I, I'm sure a lot of my listeners will, will find that extremely valuable. It'd be really interesting to actually understand how, after the career you had, or a career you have, sorry, how you got into climate change.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not a scientist. I mean, I was by degree, so I suppose the roots go way, way, way back. I did a natural sciences degree at Oxford originally, but never, never used it. So I've always been in business, all my life I've been in business. And I've spent a lot of my life, you know, in business where you're trying to sort of sell more stuff to more people, which is what we've all been doing. And it was only about 18 months ago. I mean, I knew about climate change at an intellectual level. And I think that all your listeners will have read about it. And there's a lot more in the press now than there was even 18 months ago. So they'll all be sort of aware of it at, a, at one level. But about 18 months ago, I read an article which was written by David Wallace-Wells, who's just come out with the book called The Uninhabitable Earth. And David Wallace-Wiles wrote an article in the New York magazine. So this was the summer of 17. And it basically went through the likely scenarios that could play out if we don't dramatically change the way we're operating in terms of carbon emissions. And what it explained was two things, really. One was that there are a lot of unintended consequences and feedback loops in the natural system. We only have one world and it's very integrated. And, you know, whether it be species, you know, the food chain and species or the climate, it's it's a very, it's a closed system, effectively. It's a natural system. And what he set out was the fact that if we didn't do something about the warming of the world pretty quickly, the feedback loops would overtake us, and we just wouldn't be able to reverse this, because things like methane would start being coming out of the tundra, where currently it's frozen away. You know, all these things that we would—it would just get away from us, basically. The sea, as the ice melts, the sea absorbs more CO2. So it's not just what we're putting out; it's—it's it's actually getting worse. The other thing it demonstrated was the likely societal risks, and physical risks that this climate change thing which when you talk about one and a half degrees two degrees four degrees doesn't mm. sound all that different but the, the the things that it brings with it you know that the flooding of you know 10 percent of the places where the world population lives if the arctic and antarctic ice sheets melt you know we could have a 30 meter rise in sea level i mean that is just london's gone you know so the flooding, the extreme weather events, which we're all seeing, already some of the desertification and drought in places like Africa, but not just Africa, America, mm. you know, big tracts of the earth, it was just so dramatic, and the likely immigration that could result from some of that, um, we didn't do very well absorbing a million migrants. If we had 100 million or 500 million migrants, it's, it doesn't bear thinking about. So I suddenly realized that this was a massive thing. And when I came back from reading that book and I went to my non-executive director chair, audit chair type events that I go to, we were in the middle at that time of a big consultation on the corporate governance code, the changes to mm. the code. And in the code now there is a whole thing about corporate purpose. So I was at a event with about 200 directors And they were talking about corporate purpose. And I asked the question, you know, how does the long-term issue of climate change fit with this new corporate purpose? And the person who was on the platform giving the thing said, well, let's take a straw poll. How many of the people in the room have had any conversation at their board on climate change and its impacts? And out of 200 people, we got one hand. One hand. And those people would represent probably 600 boards because they're all on more than one um so i thought gosh there's a huge gap here and i started looking into it and 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 basically what i discovered was that this is not just about the planet and you know my grandchildren and all this is a big business financial risk that we're looking at here this is asset values being under threat this is a risk from physical impacts and possibly complete destruction of business models and changes to supply chain through to the transition risk of trying to get control of this, which could lead to a massive extra regulation. You know, Big, big, big changes that businesses of all types, not just oil and gas and mining and the obvious ones, businesses of all types are going to have to grapple with And basically what I realized over a six month period from that time is that there is not a very good level of understanding of this. There is not a a good obvious source of, of advice. There are a few specialists that offer advice in this area in the consulting world. There definitely are, there are pockets in the big firms and in some specialist consultancies, but it's not pervasive. And to me, this is the big challenge. Mm. It's going to, in the next decade, not not in 80 years, this is in the next decade, our businesses are going to have to wake up and smell the coffee on this. And they're going to have to look at their risk assessment, at their strategic planning, at their long-term viability statements. It's going to affect everything from the sort of audit profession. Through the consulting world, the remuneration people, all all the way through, and the boardroom is going to have to get to be expert on this and work out the implications for their businesses. And final point before we move on from that, investors are really waking up to this, and that affects business, of course, because as soon as the investors wake up to it, then businesses wake up to it too. So for, on this particular one, I think the in, the investors. Or some parts of the investment community are ahead of the boards they've they've woken up to this earlier than the boards themselves and are really trying to push reporting and strategic planning and all of that so it's um it's a big 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 thing to get hold of
0: and that gives me a lot to dig into a lot of things to ask about and i i might start with that point you made at the end around the investor side because particularly for um like you highlight for listed companies that the shareholders the investors are a, a big driver and a big voice. When you say they're ahead of the the boards, in, in what way are they, they ahead and, and what is it that they're pushing for that boards are maybe now having to react to?
1: Well, there's a group of investors that are particularly out front on this. So you've got LNG who are very, very strong on it. Mm. BlackRock have been for some time and Hermes who've always been strong on Matters, you know, sustainable and ethical. It's part of their philosophy. And Schroders, there's a whole whole range of investors who've got specialists within their investment advisory teams, not the fund managers who are making the decisions necessarily, but the the advisory teams who have recognised that this is the big issue. And the, one of the reasons it's the big issue is because nearly all of them manage pension funds. And if you manage a pension fund, I mean, I had a conversation only a couple of weeks ago with the trustee of one of our biggest pension funds, £39 billion under management. And he said, you know, I have a 25-year-old employee of my company who is in, who is putting his money into his pension. In 40 years' time, he's expecting to get a pension out of that. I have a 40-year time frame to manage risk. And I can't do that in a four degree temperature rise. The assets will be worthless. Mm. And we're not just talking about the obvious issue of stranded assets for oil companies where they can't exploit the oil. We're talking about all businesses being impacted by being forced to move or encouraged and then forced because they won't do it fast enough to a zero carbon world. And so the investors are really out there, just as they've been on many other issues in the past to do with executive pay, to do with diversity in the boardroom. The climate thing is a big message for the investors now and will increasingly become so as they become more and more knowledgeable about
0: it. And from a board perspective, what... Yeah, you mentioned how people are going to have to start or boards are going to have to start building it into their long-term planning and their sort of strategic horizons. Like the example you gave there about the fund manager who's managing for 40 years, almost what what's stopped it having this level of um, uh, focus sooner? You know, for a 20-year, if you're doing 10-year or 20-year or 30-year business planning, actually what's, what do you, from your perspective, do you think's, stopped climate change being as high up on the board agenda as you're hoping to and working towards making it now?
1: I think there's a a series of of factors that have um, come into play. One is that it wasn't perceived to be urgent enough. And so as boards are very, very busy, and they never have enough time, and they have a lot of priorities, and they're looking at quarterly earnings, etc, etc. It just didn't seem to be the thing that had to be on the agenda. And we all spent our time, you know, five, six years ago on cybersecurity, and then we spent loads of time on GDPR. You know, we moved from one thing to another. And I just don't think it was recognized this was something that's going to affect people soon. And it's partly because the science, the communication of the science hasn't been brilliant. Mm. I mean, you know, scientists are scientists and they've done great work, but they have known for... 25, 30, 40 years that this is a problem. But when you start talking about temperature rise in 2100, I mean, you've lost your board immediately, you know. So I think one of the things that, that changed that's brought it closer to the board priority list was when the IPCC report came out in September last year and it mm. said, we've got 12 years. And um, we've got 12 years not to stop, dealing with this. We've got 12 years to actually get real change to happen in order to have a chance of keeping the temperature at one and a half degrees, or possibly two, but preferably one and a half. And we all know how long it takes to make changes in business. And we've spent all my career almost creating supply chains that, for cost reasons often, result in an item going around the world three times before it ever reaches its destination. You know, we have we've we spent all these years creating sort of a disposable economy where mm. things can't be repaired, things can't be reused, clothing gets worn once and thrown out. You know, the, we've built a, a way of operating that is unsustainable, and and so we've got to think about the changes that are required very soon in order to have a chance of dealing with them. So I think that one of the barriers has been the, the ap- apparent time frame. Mm. And I did some research with Imperial College last year where, where they looked at barriers with directors and did lots of interviews. And mm. that was the one of the key ones, you know, apparent timeframe and this is not the top priority. We've got too many other things to to deal with. Another one was lack of expertise in the boardroom, which was where your consulting guys and girls come in because there's no doubt that there isn't the level of expertise in the boardroom that there is on other other matters. And when you raise an issue in the boardroom, you need some of the voices around the table to have that expertise, or you need to bring in experts, and we'll come on to that later, I know. But Mm. so I think that it just all looked too far out, and Mm. and therefore it didn't. Even strategy sessions, even long-term strategy sessions, away day sessions, doesn't come on the agenda it's not there supply chain work it's not there so that's been a really big problem i also think it's something that you and i have spoken about before that the it's always been seen slightly as a sort of tree hugging thing
0: yeah (laughs) um
1: you know the people who've been active in this space externally have tended to be the the environmental movement and they do great things but they're not naturally influencing the boardroom always, and internally, almost more problematic, the people who've worked in what is known as the CSR area have been marginalized. So although there's expertise there, it hasn't had the profile. So I think that we have a big challenge to get the knowledge and expertise, both internally and externally, into the boardroom and reframe this as not being a it's not just an environmental thing it's a business risk it's a financial risk it's a yeah significant risk to these companies
0: well i think that's a because i was about to ask about exactly that point i think firstly the the research you did with with imperial is that has that been published and is that
1: well it was a it is available i mean it wasn't a It was a bunch of very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, I mean, you talked about 23-year-olds, these were probably about that, who selected it as an area that they would do research in as part of their course. There is a, probably your listeners won't know this, but there's actually a master's course at Imperial College called Finance and Climate Change. And that is the only degree of that type in the country that puts those two things together. Really, really interesting, Mm. very well put together and they have to select a piece of research to do. And, and five of them cho- chose to do this piece of work with me. So it yeah, it's it's available.
0: After this, if you could send me the link when we put this in, interview out, I'll put it in the show notes so anyone who wants to go and check it out can. Because it, it sounds like it's got the, like you were describing, that sort of those firsthand opinions of why and where more is needed on this. And I think to that communication point, because it it's a really interesting one just in terms of, where we are today and and some of the things that in terms of my research for the for our conversation because i know there are like you've highlighted it this is a growing movement within the business community i know you know everyone knows richard branson and he's he's putting his weight behind it but i'm interested in that point you made around the the communication side because at the same time, last week we had the the protests around Barclays and their, their investments in fossil fuels. And now this isn't to discuss whether that's right, wrong, or or whatever it is, but I think you've made you've got a really interesting point there. And actually, how can groups who are looking to influence this agenda frame it in a way that will resonate with businesses? Because like you highlighted I'm sure shaming people will work to some respect, but actually if you want sustainable change in anything, you need to bring people on the journey. What can either the, the established groups or people looking to, to do more in this area do to help businesses understand?
1: I mean, I think, you know, your, your audience is a, is a consulting audience and my work on this, which is now 18 months in, suggests that the consultants as a, as a group are a very important part of this influence. We, I mean, there's loads of influences on business. You know, there's regulators, investors, consumers, employees, you know, loads of people influencing business. But because of the lack of expertise in the boardroom, I think the consulting fraternity has a huge role to play. So to answer your question, I think it's about framing this from a business perspective I mean, there are, there are a number of threads in this and, that, and it's quite complicated, which is what makes it challenging really for boards because you do need to put a little bit of time into getting your head around it because you've got multi-dimensions. You've got, there's a sort of two by two matrix. If we had a, if we had a whiteboard, <laughs> I'd do the two by two. But if you, if you, the Bank of England talk about this very, very mm. eloquently, right? You've got physical risks. An adaptation to physical risks. So you've got the, you know, my supply chain is going to break down because I can't actually get the tomatoes grown anymore in the place I was having them grown. You know, my hotels are going to flood because the sea levels are going to rise. My consumers are not going to go on cruise ships because the storms are now such that they don't think they really fancy it. You know, you've got, but those are physical impacts really. And you've got those in the shorter and the, and the longer term, but you've also got the transition risk, which is in this particular instance, probably the, almost like what we used to call a sort of lead indicator for change, because what's going, I think is going to happen and what our experts are telling us is going to happen is because action on the Paris Agreement is not going to be quick enough then governments around the world are going to suddenly realize they've got to sharpen the regulations and Mm. certainly sharpen the reporting. So at the moment, there's something called TCFD, which is the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. And TCFD is voluntary, and it's quite sophisticated. And it's about reporting on the risks for your business of climate change. And it requires you to run scenarios across your business at different temperature levels and different types of weather effects and other things it's voluntary last year there was hardly any reporting on it we're in Mm. the reporting cycle now and i'm told there isn't a great deal more this year but there is some there are a lot of companies who said we will do it but we haven't actually done it yet because it's quite difficult now that's going to become compulsory Mm. i just think it's you know i would predict it will become compulsory And that's a business – it's framing it in a business way. They've got to report to their shareholders and their employees and other stakeholders how are we as a business adapting to and mitigating – because that's the other dimension, adaptation, Mm. mitigation. How are we adapting to and mitigating climate risk? How are we taking advantage of opportunities? I mean, there are opportunities in this space as well. It's not all doom and gloom. There's some great investments to be had. If we as boards have to report on how we're tackling all of that to our shareholders in the main body of our annual report, we will take it very seriously because mm. we, we do all of that reporting. So it's shaping it as a business question. The other thing I think that the consulting world can do for us is help with solutions. I mean, to me, I think for your listeners. This is the biggest opportunity for consulting ever. This is the the next inflection point that comes after the inflection point that we had when IT suddenly became pervasive. And that was big. I mean, it really did transform businesses and it created a massive amount of billions of dollars of revenue for consulting firms around the world. I, I won't predict the The money is attached to this, but I think in terms of if you you work on the basis that boardroom need drives consulting revenues, this is a big need. There isn't the expertise in the boardroom. It's not obvious where to go for help. Once people think, oh, my goodness, we should do something about this, they are then stuck because they don't quite know how to do it. It's sophisticated. It's scenario-based. It's strategic. It's risk but boards are smart. The individuals on boards are smart people, and given some frameworks, and some guidance, and some strategic thinking, they will get it, and they will protect their companies and and help grow their companies through this challenge.
0: Thinking about that point you made around the the consultant support, there is a are we at the phase from your perspective where if I'm taking an Anderson or whoever it may be, if I, I'm in a consulting firm and thinking about this as a proposition are we still in the exploratory phase of showing people what the problem is or do you think that we are now more in the implementation phase of how do we fix it i ask that to try and get a gauge of if i'm looking at building a proposition is it more around showing someone they have a problem or is it showing or showing a board they have a problem or is it showing a board how to solve the problem they know they have?
1: I think it's both because companies are at different stages of the journey. You know, some companies have really put a lot of time into this and, you know, oil utilities I and mean, the oil companies may not be doing what we need them to do yet, but they've certainly put time into thinking about it. There are other sectors that have spent very little time thinking about it. You know, if you sell, I mean, even the food manufacturers and, and distributors haven't really got a full suite of, of solutions, um, although I think the supermarkets have spent quite a bit of time in it. So I think it depends on which sector you're advising. The thing that I feel strongly about is that this is something that all consultants, all consultants need to understand and start to put into their consulting conversations because it affects all aspects of advice so you know if you're a remuneration consultant you you're going to be going to be asked what how do we create objectives this is what the the investors are asking for personal objectives for directors that will deliver climate protection So if you're a financial consultant or a, someone who does all that sophisticated financial modeling, you're going to have to be able to model climate risk. If you're a strategy consultant, I mean, I find it quite shocking actually that so few of the strategy consultants are really raising this issue. And I think one of the problems has been, from what I understand, speaking to some of the big firms, 10 years ago, a lot of them invested heavily in this area you know, McKinsey did, the big four, they invested in expertise and started to build teams to offer this as a service. And they couldn't sell it because the the companies just weren't ready. I think they are now ready or becoming ready. And of course, what happens is when they become ready, they suddenly are all ready at once. So where we are is we've got some specialists out there who, you know, in each of the of the bigger firms anyway, there are sort of sustainability practices. But then it's not embedded through the the general consulting offer. And they don't work necessarily with the strategy consultants. So you can go through a whole strategic away day and it it just doesn't get raised. So, which is why I feel that if I were on my consulting journey now, I mean, it's really exciting. It's terrifying, but it's really exciting. I mean, this is like it was in the 80s all over again. You know, I would be saying to these youngsters, find out about this stuff. Get yourself the expertise on this stuff. Be ready to advise on it when and introduce it into the conversation because mm-hmm. the more it gets introduced into the conversation, the more the clients will want to buy it. And when we first started selling change management consulting, nobody would ever heard of it you know, why would we want that? And then you gradually, within two years, change management consulting and started to be a sort of mainstream activity. So I think this is the same. I think it's really worth people getting up to speed with all of this and reading up on it and finding out as much as they can so that they can consider how their skill set could play into this arena. And if I were a young consultant, I would certainly be doing it because you know, these guys are going to be living through this whole
0: yeah, and experience. I, and I, I think that's a really interesting point. And I, something that I'd be I'd be intrigued on really from you're in these, you're in and have been in for you know, the last 15, 20 years, these boardrooms and you, you will have seen these cycles and, the thing that I'm curious on is, is to your point, this is going to grow into a big topic. And people, you know, I've had other guests who've shared your advice that you should look down the line at what's coming and, and skill up in that and not say, you know, what was big last year or this year. But how do you balance that or how should how should consultancies approach getting that? that balance between what's currently the hot topic. So let's take, I don't know, disruption and innovation. You know, everyone's investing in technology businesses, technology funds, and there's a lot of focus on uh, robotics and automation and AI. Everyone everyone has an AI thing. But actually, how is a, a consultancy, should they balance that side with then bringing starting to introduce boards particularly those who are maybe less familiar with the climate change challenges to that so to to balance those needs is it bringing the climate impact of some of those technology conversations into what they're talking about or is it starting with the what they want now and then introducing them to the the new and the climate change after that
1: well I think I think it's more the former really I mean I think that there's no doubt there's lots of other consulting activities that we need to you know have the benefit of absolutely and and innovation and technology and ai and all these things are really important i think what i am trying to seek is that people know enough about the climate risk to overlay that on the things they're discussing with their clients because each of those things has a climate dimension i mean you know if we don't get enough innovation on our energy systems, on, you know, our manufacturing, on mm. our supply chains, you know, if we don't reinvent a lot of that stuff, we won't tackle the challenge. So it should just, it should be a part, not the part mm. of those things. AI is going to be a, a key to, to part of this because it will give us the knowledge to be able to u- do more with less I mean, there's a Microsoft advert, isn't there, where they're using AI to grow, uh, to to make sure that you they grow seedlings or something with a lot less water. I mean, there's, you know, the, these tools, I mean, I'm not saying climate change is the only thing, you know, that's important. Mm. You know, we've, we've got an economy to run and we've got jobs to produce and uh, all of that. But I think there is an element of what we do that needs to be Tweaked and shifted to respond to this challenge because it's going to happen. And all of the different skill sets have a part to play in that. The strategy guys, probably more than most, because they, you know, if a board is supposedly doing a long term plan, I mean, anything that's five years, if you have a five year plan at the moment that hasn't taken any account of of this, then it's not really um we know it won't play out as set out because if your own organization is not going to be affected by the changes over the next five years, your clients certainly will be affected. Because one of the problems with this is people sort of revert to buildings and flights. You know, it's it's all about air conditioning mm. and and not flying. What they don't do is think actually this is this is about that yes but it's also about the whole economic system and mm. the clients where your clients are going so if i was advising a travel company at the moment i would be asking some very very significant questions about how they're going to think about the the likely or possible changes in travel habits that might come about from the fact that there's going to be a David Attenborough documentary on climate change broadcast in six weeks' time or whenever it is. I mean, mm. um, you know, the I would ask those sort of questions, not just do you are you using a better fuel in your aeroplane, which is important. You know, it, it's multidimensional, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and no, I, I think that uh, I appreciate you, you sort of you gave the. example of the the 80s of the computers and i think like you say is that it is that point that this transcends all areas of life and it's how you build it build it in i think the david attenborough i mean that that's a fascinating example because one question and this might have come out of of your work with the the students at imperial or or maybe the work you're doing with cambridge university as well or just your your general conversations in these non-executive forums but something that really stuck with me is for instance if you take the plastic agenda which is obviously an environmental piece as well actually the rate of change that has come from that so you know, for 10 years groups have been saying plastics terrible uh, i think it was a david i might i think was it david it was it was um blue planet blue planet you know he, that came out and said how bad plastic was and i mean what was that last year the year before we're not talking much more than 2 years and every big company that i know is now giving reusables you know they the rate of change seems to be phenomenal is that you know, is that a only going to continue do you think
1: i think so and i think the plastic one is very is a very very interesting case study and it's something that consultants could well shape as a case study for business because it's multi-dimensional i mean mm. you know you you had a visual image of a bird feeding plastic to its chick and the next thing it, you know the whole world as well certainly they're The UK world has has woken up to to that. And you get a a five-year-old writing a letter to Peter Express saying, please don't have plastic straws anymore. Uh, Where it's really interesting is how quickly it flipped. That's Mm. one thing. Um, How important it is for business to understand how it can respond because consumers can't make good choices if business doesn't make it possible. I really wound up a group of people I was talking with last week about this because I said, you know, I went into Waitrose and I put loose sprouts on the checkout thing because, you know, they don't give you a paper bag to put them in and I'm not going to pick up a plastic bag of sprouts. It's completely ridiculous. And some supermarkets, you can't even get sprouts that aren't in a plastic bag. So until businesses make it possible for consumers to make the good choices, then we won't get that change. But that's a big thing. I mean, they've got to think about, you know, you look at how much packaging there is in Marks & Spencer, in Waitra, in all these supermarkets, all the pre-prepared foods are in packaging. They're nearly all in non-recyclable packaging. And that's been developed over years, those products. So actually to change those products, you can't just flick a switch and say, well, now we'll put it all into cardboard. Or And there's all sorts of issues around waste because you get more waste if it's not plastic rat and you know, it's not a it, it's a complicated scenario and the other thing that's interesting I think about plastics thing is that the consumer is quite fickle so although intellectually consumers don't want to use plastic you know when it becomes inconvenient or when you know time passes a bit you know there are still people taking once used plastic bags out of supermarkets. I I can't believe there still are, to be honest. I mean, Mm. you know, that's, what, five years we've been trying to get rid of the plastic bags, but people still take them. You know, you think, why do you still not have a ordinary bag in your pocket you can get them in the, they're only an inch square now you can get them they can even go in a man's pocket without it. well uh,
0: and uh, if you have a link for one send it again and I'll, I'll I'll put it in the show notes but I I think that that point that you know that, that point you made just highlights the particularly for the consulting market but for for any companies is is that rate of change because you know you take something in fact, even if you take something as simple as giving all your employees reusable bottles. You know, that's a huge supply chain logistical challenge and and it's not an industry I work in, but like you say, when you move into the supermarkets, transporting, you know, all loose sprouts and not packaging them and you know, doing that across your entire product line when, like you say, for decades, they have had plastic bags and plastic packaging, that's a huge mm-hmm. operational challenge and actually, I think, goes to the heart of what you were talking about with other examples. If, if suddenly people stop flying and, you know, because of the next David Attenborough documentary, it becomes in vogue to go down to to Cornwall instead of going to the Cayman Islands. Or I just use that for the alliteration. I don't think that many people go to the Caymans. But, <laughs> um, that actually has huge ramifications, and and particularly around the rate, the speed of change. Because I know from my consulting career, and I'm, I'm sure you had the same. You know, IT. Let's take a big IT change. You know, it's not unusual to think in three or four year terms, but actually, if the customers have seen David Attenborough on a Saturday. And then on Monday, you've got your your letter from the five-year-old. Tuesday, people don't want to use plastic. Actually, how you react to those changes to remain competitive becomes a huge operational strategic challenge that you have to deal with.
1: I mean, McDonald's, I I know, said that it took six months for them to get rid of the straws. And there was one other, whether it was disposable cups or something, six months, and they reckoned that in that six months they lost millions and millions of pounds of revenue because consumers wanted them not to have the straws on there and thought they could do them instantly, which is exactly your point. But then you can flip it the other way around and you can say, I mean, I was, as you know, on at one time on the board of Greg's, and Greggs produced the vegan sausage roll and you wouldn't normally perhaps have associated that as being part of the Greg's product set, but it, it came out and it was, went like wildfire. And there's been a massive success for Greg's, and they did it because their customers said they wanted a product that was not meat. So I think it's very, very interesting the dynamic, and this is where you're all your sort of marketing consultants and product design guys and everyone, where they all come in. That you know the sophistication of the analysis of consumer behaviour in this space is. Absolutely fascinating. I wouldn't pretend to be expert on that at all, but I think it's it's it is sophisticated and it's segmented as all consumer behaviour. But you know, you've got the my family's sort of age group, the 40-plus age group, where they've had the privilege of all the you know, the easy flights, the easy foodstuffs, all the other things, and they're very busy and they're intellectually interested in all of this, but they find it quite difficult to change their behaviors. Mm. Whereas as you get a bit younger, people are much more actively changing their personal attitudes. Well,
0: and I think that it becomes a really interesting strategic question because we've talked, you made the point around this being quite pertinent to strategy consultants and where do I take my, my five year direction. I guess the, the interesting thing about the examples we've talked about is that while you obviously at a, an organizational level, you need to have that strategic direction there also feels almost like a a much lower level and not lower level in terms of hierarchy or, or quality but just in terms of sort of closeness to the customer of like you say younger customers are changing quickly you know five years ago vegan was something that only two or three people with a hacky sack did now every restaurant i go into has a vegan menu and you've i guess you've sat on these these boards did Gregs during your tenure have a strategic direction for veganism or was that a response to a you know, much more of a a need seen in the market and a reaction to it
1: i think it was the latter i mean when i was at gregs we even struggled getting any salads in the shops you know we <laughs> put them in and no one bought them mm. and that's one of the difficulties i think for for retailers and where the consultants you know can perhaps support them in that i noticed just last week that tesco is doing a plastic free shop experiment Mm. pilot but they're doing it in two stores and what i found when i was on the board of greg's and we we tried to experiment with health in those days it was the healthy eating thing Mm. we tried to experiment with salads and things like that we that when you do these pilots you you have to stick with them for quite a long time because Mm. they don't always go straight away and it's easy to give up and i wonder what will happen with tesco whether they're two shops is going to be enough, or whether you know? And there's a thing in Birmingham going on at the moment where they're offering people 2,500 pounds. I'm, I think it's about that, to give up their cars and use just public transport for, I can't remember, a year or two years. I know I read read about it in the paper, but you know, it, it's a small pilot. But you know, is it, is that enough? And how ha- do we test things well enough in us in mm. a small pilot? like that i don't know but this latest the gregs thing i i absolutely know because i was speaking to the chairman about it a week ago it was driven by the consumer demand and it was quite a short you know it, it happened last year suddenly i mean we would get back it's i think it's 13.5 billion hectares of land if the world became vegan and all the, and so that's a, that's land i think it's as big as america china and europe put together it's all being used to rear sheep pigs cattle particularly cattle and feeding those animals on product that's being grown in huge fields if the fields were producing food direct for us then we would be able to feed the world now i i'm not a uh, you know i beginning to sound a bit like a sort of mad person I'm I'm a very pragmatic business person who sits Mm. on boards several boards I'm not an obsessive you know (laughs) but I I just think it's quite interesting that there are facts like that Mm. you know that people just don't recognize and I'm not saying everybody's got to go vegan but I think a lot of people are cut down on the meat that they eat and that must be affecting the food chain and the farming community and you know, and, it, and people are cutting down on dairy because if you don't eat beef, there's not much point in drinking milk because they both come out of the same product. So, you know, it. I think there's going to be some big changes. Whether they'll be quick enough, I don't know. But I think, I think business is going to be, have to be very, very responsive.
0: Something you said there about your. The roles you've held actually triggered with me because I think this retail example has been fascinating in terms of showing actually the the facts. You know, like you started our conversation with it. This isn't something in ten years, and this isn't you know just about Greenpeace. This is tangibly affecting businesses because consumer habits are changing, and and from a B two C perspective, that is having a tangible impact on return for businesses. I'd be intrigued because I know you you were chairman of Harvey Nash for for a significant period of time. Actually, from a business to business perspective, you know, and I do want to come on to, to, to my core listeners of consultants, but actually for those organizations who don't see, let's say, you know, the consumer in the way the Gregs or the supermarkets do, how can they be thinking about this from a, what is that benefit to them for acting on it now?
1: Well, I think for a Harvey Nash, I mean, those who don't know it, it's a global recruitment business. And con- massive contractor business. I think for Harvey Nash, the opportunity of all of this is to start to make available the skill sets, the people who will mm. have the skill sets, and that is a a new area. I mean, Harvey Nash has been primarily IT, but it you know if they chose to, it would become a a new area for them. I think the challenge for all of these advisory businesses is understanding the impact of this on their clients so that if they have a major exposure to a particular client, they are making sure that those clients actually are ahead of the game on this because otherwise there is risk. And I mean, I was in a conversation with someone who was about to sign a big contract with one of the big travel agencies. And I said, well, you know, just just ask them what their strategy is on all of this. Because if you sign this big contract... And it's a long-term contract. And then you suddenly find that they hit a problem. You know, I mean, look at Boeing with this. I know it's not a climate thing, but look how quickly people have responded to that Boeing issue. And I think the world's so connected now. You know, people are aware of all of the things that are going on around them and reacting to them. And when we stop faffing around with Brexit, we might just put our heads above the parapet and start thinking about real things and proper things that we should be focusing on.
0: Well, and <laughs> and, and I, I fully agree with you. And if we have, we, maybe after this, we can talk about that. I doubt we have time on the interview. But I, I, I think the Brexit example actually is a really interesting, just as a side piece, you know, not to talk about the politics or whether it's good or bad, but actually just the impact that the uncertainty around that has has shown in the fragility of supply chains and actually the say fragility and it's a huge issue but i'm sure there would be climate change, you know climate change sort of forecasts that would be of similar significance and actually the you only have to look at what that's doing to business to see the, the impact that climate change has i i'm intrigued julian we've sort of i feel there is an elephant in this room and that is that we're talking about an audience of consultants and They can help their clients with climate change, but consulting as an industry, you know, you mentioned before, it's not just about the planes and the offices, but consultants, just by the way the business is, tend to do a significant amount of travel, consume a significant amount of hotel rooms, dinners, all of the above. Actually, what can consulting firms be doing to help play their part for this?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, the first thing I would say is going to sound really trivial, but it's if we go back to our plastics, mm-hmm. right. I've been I've had this little campaign on this, and I don't think I've got very far. I have achieved it with one or two very big name banks, but that's about it. Nobody should be having slide decks that have a single sheet of plastic on the front and
0: and possibly on the
1: back. Nobody. It is. It adds and a
0: plastic spiral ring binder, at binder and a as plastic
1: well. spiral ring binder. But you've got to bind it in some way, I suppose. But I mean, you know, I know a lot of it's kept electronically now. But still, as a board member, typically when anybody comes and presents to us, there is this plastic sheet on the front, and it does. It adds absolutely nothing, and it all goes into landfill. Yeah. It can't be recycled. So I would. That would be a tiny thing. I would ban all <laughs> plastic fronts of all all slide decks. Um the, the flying thing is interesting. I mean, I, I think that far too much flying happens. I think that the technology ought to be make it possible to do a lot more stuff remotely. I mean, it, it certainly does make it possible to do loads more remotely than it used to, but, it, but still there seems to be quite a lot of apparent need to go to places, particularly transatlantic, and to go in a pack, as opposed to having one person go, maybe and and other people being brought in through the technology. So I think it, we ought not to be doing as much of it as, as as we are. I think that the whole buildings thing. I mean, the UK is very bad on buildings. Our build, you know, we're, the new buildings are very good, but the historic stock of buildings is very poor. So, and this thing about walking around in the middle of winter in a short sleeve T shirt with the uh, you know, the heating turned up to some ridiculous temperature is... I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But people don't seem to relate to that. They don't seem yeah. to get that. So I think that companies are trying on their in their internal structures in and yeah. their employee-related structures. Funnily enough, the technology is... The computer technology is one of the biggest problems because that... How so? Well, it, it, there's a lot of embedded carbon in the manufacture. They get... Changed over quite frequently. The supply chain for the development of them is bad. I mean, I was speaking to someone the other day who, who just got a new laptop in a, one of our big companies, and she said, I went to check about where it had come from. And it, I think I said this earlier, it had been around the world three times before it actually got to her desk. So they use a lot of heat. I mean, did you know that streaming? Broadband streaming and Netflix and all of that, and I know Netflix are trying their best on this, but broadband streaming is going to emit more carbon than flying, before very long. Really? It's absolutely unbelievable.
0: Forgive my ignorance, but where does that come? Where does the carbon and the emissions come
1: from? All the cooling of the servers. Uh, of course. So you see the servers and and things. I mean, we all know that Bitcoin uses more or it may have changed now that it's fallen in value but certainly when it was at top value it was there was more carbon coming out of bitcoin mining than the whole of austria it was denmark originally and then it became austria That's so austria obviously uses more than denmark so but mining bitcoin i mean <laughs> this is ridiculous and the and the guys who invented bitcoin could never have in a million years imagined that they would become a major climate risk mm. you know but streaming is very, very power-intensive, very power-intensive. And, of course, a lot of it's sort of pretty wasted, really, and we've everybody's got totally used to it. But, you know, you're just constantly seeing it coming through, coming through on phones and things like that, and you just you think, where's all that going to go? I don't know.
0: And those examples I find really interesting because, you know, to that point around what can consulting firms do, I think I was part expecting some quite drastic – changes but actually some of those points you make you know as simple as I mean frankly why in this day and age you have to print a slide deck off at all would be would be my personal question but I appreciate some people still like that but simple things like that plastic and actually you know I mean we're, we're here recording in London today and it was the thing that always used to amaze me when I lived here is how even when no one was obviously in the office you know we're talking eight nine ten o'clock the city and Canary Wharf would be aglow and it, you know it, it, I guess it's like the examples you gave there around streaming because it's this broadly the same isn't it? it's technology causing needing cooling which causes carbon and actually simple things like if there is a large consulting firm listening to this or a small one simply turning out the lights turning off your kits the flight i mean the flights is a is another curious one around and and it's interesting hearing what you say around board perception changing because i do wonder a lot of that face-to-face and, you know, bringing our global experts in, I suspect is that, I remember Harry used a great word, that a great term that stuck me called um, corporate theater. And actually, you know, if you want to sell to a big board, bringing your your experts from all around the world, that's a really, really good way to do it. But actually I wonder to, to like you're saying is, if the boards and your clients' perception of environments changing, well actually, if you're going in, even if you're going to sell them something completely different, you know, let's say you're selling them financial regulation advice, actually whether... Turning up with three of your experts who have flown three times around the world, let's say, is going to be seen as a negative my boards, as opposed to, look, here's our guy in London and here's our, our woman in Australia and uh, our other person in America. So it's a really, yeah, it's a really interesting way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think what people say to me is the clients have to start to say they don't want this in order for us not to, to do it. And so it's a circle, like all of this, you need a virtuous circle, don't you? But I think it will come. And wouldn't it be nice not to have to keep doing all that flying? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I, so I was in my time as a consultant, I, was, I never, I, I didn't fly much, but I got the train um, to and from many places in the UK. I wouldn't, I'm not in a rush to visit again, but I don't know many people who enjoy the travel side of it either. But that's a, that's a conversation for another time. And now I'm conscious we spent a, a long time on on the, the climate change side. And I think it's, it's a fascinating topic. I I want to almost bring us wind us back quite quite a way to i guess what might be one of your your other personal inflection points and that was when you left consulting because you, you've obviously as you've you've mentioned um throughout our conversation you you've had a successful career in consulting you've then had a successful career in industry as a both an executive and non-executive director i'd love to start with actually just what it was that led you to leave consulting and and the the decision process or questions you asked yourself when making that that choice
1: you make it sound a lot more sort of considered, perhaps, than it. I mean, <laughs> uh, it was mainly p- a personal thing. I just, mm. you know, I'd done it for a long time. It was exhausting. <gasps> a lot of travel, as mm. you say. And I just thought, I need to take a bit of time out here and work out what the next phase is going to be. Because, you know, these days we have a, have long careers. So, you know, mm. we we're, we're working for... 45 years or whatever. And I felt that I couldn't see it continuing as it was indefinitely. And I I almost sort of fell into the uh, industrial board role because I didn't, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And at the time, of course, Anderson Consulting was going through quite a difficult time because mm-hmm. Arthur Anderson was going through a difficult time and there was happened a, a little after, but um, there was a big dis- argument going on between the two. It was all quite Quite difficult, so and I was approached by a search firm saying we have this bank and they want an expert in change management to join their board, and I thought, well, that's quite interesting actually because I've never heard any board say they wanted an expert in change management. They might they might want us to come and you know do something and a workshop, but they didn't want us to come and be there permanently. But the Woolwich was going through a massive change. I mean, the Woolwich was the first bank to do sort of bricks and clicks, you know, on uh, the open plan banking, it was called, where you could mm. offset your mortgage and your income and all of that. It was it was very innovative, the Woolwich, but delivering all of that was a big IT challenge and also a big people challenge for the staff. Mm. And so they genuinely wanted to transform the business. And it just sounded like a really interesting challenge. And so I, that's why I went and did.
0: So maybe... Something on the on the back of what you said about that being a relatively easy decision to make, I'd be really interested. Having made the move, actually, what were the the key differences and similarities of going into a going into industry in that board role compared with your time as a consultant sort of as the outsider looking in?
1: It was more different, I think, than I possibly expected. I mean, and it went in phases because when I went into the Woolwich, in a way, I almost operated as a consultant, but on the inside, because Mm. it was all very new, a lot of change, a lot of of, uh, consultant type activity going on, you know, workshops and mission vision type stuff and strategy stuff going on. And then it moved inevitably into more of an implementation phase. And that was more different than I had really expected. And it... It's, it, to be honest, doesn't play to my strengths. I mean, mm. I like variety. I like like being on my feet. I like you know working with lots of different people. I mean, I, I've been, as we all have, through all these different sort of frameworks that you get assessed on. You know, Myers-Briggs and Belbin and all that. And it was one thing for sure is I'm not a complete finisher. I'm I am a definitely an ideas person and a resource investigator person and a bit of a chairman. But I'm not someone who goes on for five years doing the same thing and I found that quite hard and then of course Barclays came along and and wanted to buy us and and that was quite that was really interesting I mean it was it was good I mean it was good from a shareholder perspective it was quite sad in a way because you know it was an independent bank and it was doing great stuff but from a board perspective it was absolutely fascinating because you know it was my first experience on the inside obviously of a major takeover and all the legal side of that as well as the human side of it I mean takeovers are things that and unless you've actually been on the inside of one or are are, a advisory banker you know if you work for Rothschilds or somewhere you do it all the time but if you're a person who's worked in business you have no idea what it's going to feel like to be part of a of a takeover experience. And and so I learned a huge amount doing that. And I also got my first couple of non-executive roles while I was at the Woolwich. So that gave me a sort of step into a non-executive role. When I left consulting, I thought I'd go straight into a non-executive portfolio type of work. But it became obvious to me that it's very difficult to do that. If you haven't been on a board, on a PLC board, it's quite hard to get onto one. So... The consulting credentials didn't give me a passport to get onto non executive boards, but the Woolwich credential of being a, an executive director of a FTSE 100 with some quite chunky responsibility did give me that opening. So that was what enabled me to start the non executive work, mm. which is much more akin to consulting in a way. I mean, you know, it depends what role you play on the board, but. It, I typically am a, either a, a senior independent director, a, a generalist NED or a REMCO chair and have been chairman, of course, as well. And in all those, which I would perhaps contrast with the audit chair role, which I don't do, mm-hmm. in all of those, it, it, there's quite a strong sort of consulting type of element to them. They're not mm-hmm. consulting, but they require those people skills and the same sort of dynamics as when you're leading a board discussion as a consultant.
0: So I I do want to come on to that, those roles you took on, but I'm I'm just intrigued and and more so because it's not an area I'm I'm an expert in. You made the distinction of of the roles you do do versus the audit chair. Is it because you have to be a qualified accountant or is there another reason why you don't tend to take audit chair roles?
1: Well, you now have to be a qualified accountant or at least... You have to explain if you're not. I mean, originally it was just relevant financial experience, but I think now it's actually shifted to be more. It says the rules say something like, or the codes say something like, relevant recent accounting and audit and financial experience, or words like that. And I don't qualify for that. I'm not an accountant. There was a time when it was looser, but I always naturally, I think, got sucked into maybe slightly dragged into the REMCO role because I've got a people background and the sort of whole executive pay incentivization, all of that was much closer to my natural experience. So I think that that's where I have typically ended up.
0: So before we go on to your how you got the the non-exec roles and and what you you did there because I think that's that's a really interesting point to pick up on just that it almost comes back to the climate change point around the you mentioned you're on a, a number of remcos actually how is that conversation changing on remuneration committees to bring the environmental or the climate change component that we spoke about into executive pay and executive remuneration
1: I think it's just starting. It's not advanced yet, but I think it's definitely coming and investors are definitely asking for it. I mean, if we go back 10 years, executive pay and certainly directors' pay, short term bonuses and long term plans were all financially measured. So it was all financial targets. If you look at the landscape now, it's probably 25, 30% of certainly annual bonuses are based on personal objectives. And within that, Investors in some, for some sectors are starting to ask for environmental, carbon, climate change related objectives. And a significant example is Shell. And the chief executive of Shell has climate related objectives baked in to his objectives. And that was the first big oil company to do that. And there was a lot of coverage of it. So it's, it's coming. I think that it's quite a difficult thing to set you know to to know how to capture it in a measurable objective and they like the personal objectives to be measurable so it's a little bit like the issue we always had with health and safety it was always quite difficult to know how to do it because people argued about whether putting you know time without accidents and stuff, it was a sensible thing to have as a target. It's important to get the right target. And it's important also that people don't think that this is about saying, you know, these companies are bad and these companies are good because of what they do, the sectors they operate in. I mean, we need the energy sector to help solve this problem. It's not that all oil companies are bad. It's just that if you add up their current strategies, we end up with a four or five degree rise in global temperatures, which is unacceptable. But we do absolutely need those companies. So the objectives need to be crafted so that they are appropriate for the companies. And for a lot of them, I think it's at this stage, it's going to be objectives along the lines of, has the company taken full account of you know, climate risk in its strategic planning, you know, and and then you have to sort of evidence it. It's going to be more those sort of questions. It's not going to be saying, have you reduced your carbon footprint by X million tonnes? But we do need to do the latter because, I mean, just before we go back onto the NED stuff, I mean, just a fact, we've got 450 billion tons of carbon left in our budget before we blow ourselves out the water in terms of everybody knows about budgets all consultants understand budgets right so before we get to a point where the world warms to a point where things get very 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 difficult we have Mm -hmm. 450 billion tons left and we're emitting 43 or maybe 400 actually i mean i may have got that slightly wrong but it's you get the message and we are currently emitting 43 billion tons a year so even with my maths, if you multiply 43 by 10, you're, you're there. Mm-hmm. So this is why the urgency comes in. So we do have to measure the carbon and maybe executive pay will start to be based part mm-hmm. in part on that at some point. But I, I couldn't see it happening for three or four years, probably.
0: If we had time, I would dig into more of that statistic, but it's a really interesting, really interesting point there. To to bring us back, and unfortunately, I always find these conversations. There's much more you want to talk about than there is time to do it. I did want to just touch on the you mentioned around how the executive role gave you the opportunity to do those non-executive roles. Was that much like the move to to the from the consulting to the the industry role? How did those non-executive roles come about? Was that a conscious choice like you mentioned you'd thought about before moving into industry? Was that something that someone called and you said yes? Now, the reason I ask you just I've had others who I've spoken to who are interested in becoming non-executives and I've had other guests who are non-executives and have made the point it can be quite a hard industry, call it an industry, hard industry to break into. I'd be intrigued how you got in and then how you maintain that balance between your executive roles and non-executive roles throughout your career.
1: I mean most of the non-executive positions now are appointed through some sort of formal search process and that was part of the best practice that was put forward some years ago because you know it was really at one point 20 years ago it was partly sort of who you knew and people put their mates on the boards and and that was not sensible so almost all the positions that I've taken have been ones where I've been approached by some search firm of and a range of them quite a wide range of them and I've done public sector and private sector some of the public sector appointments you just apply for you know they're open advertising but they still tend to have a search firm supporting Mm. that and so the way I've approached it and it's a very this is a very personal thing it probably wouldn't work for a lot of other people but I have sectors that I don't want to be involved with because I don't warm to them and I have others where people approach me, and I think, gosh, that'd be really interesting. You know, I I didn't go out to say I'm going to have these four appointments and they're going to be these four sectors. And you also need a range because you can't have conflicts. So you can't be on the boards of two things, two companies that to any degree really compete. So you inevitably, when you're a non-executive, I think, get drawn into sectors that are not your core skill set. You build a skill set of being a non-exec or being a CID or being a chairman, which overarches your skill set as a mm. financial services person or a retail person or an uh, industrial person. Because being a non-executive is about asking the right questions. It's about holding to account, but it's also about sort of encouraging debate and, and challenge and contributing to strategy but you don't have to be an expert to do that you need to make sure the process is right so i think it's possible to be quite open-minded about sectors when you take these roles
0: so one last piece on uh, to that point around that it's good to have a balance of non-executive roles i i framed this for some of my senior listeners who are partners in consulting firms let's say and then Maybe they are looking to to make that transition. They want to do something different for the next chapter of their career. Actually, what is your advice to somebody looking to make that transition? Is it, like you mentioned before, you need an executive role in a in a listed company before you can do it? Or is there a different route if people don't want to take that as the, the route they go down?
1: I mean, I think for someone like that, there has to be a different route because you don't want to go and be an executive in a listed company. At I mean, I was still... What was I? Forty-five or something? When I when I took the Woolwich role, so there has to be a different route. That the the way I have looked at it when I've talked, I talked to quite a lot of people about how do you become a non-executive because mm-hmm. people are always asking, and and I always talk about two things. One is do lots of networking and try to get yourself in front of the on or onto the radar of the search firms because you just never know what skills they're going to be looking for and how your skill set might fit in and and there's quite a lot of churn because the rules now say that you know they're they're very much they've shortened the term of of non-execs and Mm -hmm. certainly chairs substantially so there's a lot more movement so there's a lot more opportunities coming out and the other thing i always suggest to people is try to get on a board preferably a commercial board i'm not i've got absolutely nothing against working on a charity board. And if you want to do that post a major consulting career, fantastic. But being on a charity board doesn't really help you get onto a corporate board. Mm -hmm. So if what you really want is to be on a corporate board, then the best thing in my experience, if somebody doesn't just knock on your door, is to go on, try to go onto a smaller company, try to go onto something that is close to your skill set, and your background. So you really do bring some proper expertise. So you're not just saying, I'm a great consultant, I'll be a wonderful board member, but you're saying, I've got all this, you know, 30 years experience in food retail. That might be a bad example because they tend to be quite big companies, but, you know, innovation in the energy space Mm -hmm. and try to identify, you know, private equity companies or AIM companies, or slightly smaller companies to get that first one to be doing a, a non-executive role because then you can leap from that you're sort of in the club really and you can leap from that onto bigger ones if that's what you want.
0: No, re- Really good advice and Julia I'm very mindful of time and like a, like I said before with all these interviews, I always think, if only I had another hour. But then I'm sure I'd want another hour after that. So I've got two more questions, and these are questions I, I ask all my all of my guests. And I think, given the topics we've discussed around climate change, we'd be really intrigued by your answers to these. So the first one is is about books and. I like to read a lot. I like to, to get recommendations for books. Now, I'd love to know and take this as climate change, take this as your, your um, executive career, take this in your consulting career. But what is the book or books that you you found yourself gifting or giving most often or, or recommending most to people? Well,
1: of course, way back when we were looking at things like when giants learned to dance and all that. I mean, it's, all, it's so funny because you think of all those books and all that wonderful sort of rhetoric. And now you look at the companies and hardly any of them still exist. So I'm very suspicious of recommending um, business books um, anymore. But I would recommend that people read The Uninhabitable Earth, which is the David Wallace Wells book. It is pretty depressing, but it's punchy. And I, I think it's an important read. I think it's something that people, just as they should watch the David Attenborough film, they should read The Uninhabitable Earth. And I've been giving it to people because i think it's it's not really a scientific book but it's um it tells us a bit about what we're up against
0: well i think given the conversation we had earlier i think a great recommendation for people who want to learn more about it and like you highlighted consultants who want to to upskill in this area because they you know they know it will help their long-term career i just i realized i should have asked for it earlier you mentioned the there was an article that led you to read the book. Do you still have the article? Or can you, maybe after this, if we can find it, I'd love to put it in the notes as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say David wallace Wiles' book would help you upskill as a consultant. It's more about you as a a human being. I think in terms of upskilling as a consultant, what people need to do is get on the internet and look at things produced by people like Accounting for Sustainability, Mm -hmm. A4S, the TCFD, documentation, which is very, there's a lot of it, it's a lot of detail, but it is very rigorous and and, mm-hmm. and important. And the other thing I would really highly recommend, which is something I was involved with, is the World Economic Forum latest document, which is on climate governance principles for boards. And that is very, very good. And it, it doesn't go into the action uh, sector-based action but it goes into all the how do you get boards to focus on this and it's very well put together so i would recommend that people have a look at that
0: brilliant well i will i will dig that out i'll put a link in the show notes to that as well so we've got the 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 book and we've got that as well so fantastic and then very very last question and this is as much a chance to to recap as it is to to highlight any specific points for each of these individuals and the, the question is you you have three people in front of you one of them is just starting their career in consulting. So 21, maybe 22, just leaving university. One is, I always feel like I make this sound like someone's achieving much more than they should, but someone in manager level. So I, anywhere from four five to eight years, let's say. And then finally one who, who's approaching partner level. And, and the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them?
1: Well, I know I sound like a stuck record really, but I mean, I would give the same advice to all of them, really, because they all come from their own level. And I would tell them all to get to understand this climate change issue, what the risks and opportunities are, um, so that when they are presenting to their clients over the next five years, they've, they've got an opportunity to discuss that and to build the consulting skills to help tackle them. If you're a partner, then you can build a whole consulting offer and team to do this. You know, It's a big 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 opportunity but i think for for others that having this knowledge and that this in their toolkit would be well worth doing
0: fantastic well i think that is a great place to to wrap up so thank you very much for for today julie i've I really enjoyed it it's, the, it's given me a lot to think about because i think i i wouldn't say i'm as progressive as i should be on the climate change side my, my wife is much more progressive um, and will actively stop us taking plastic from sainsbury's and and other such things Um, but uh, I think this has been really powerful to me because like you've highlighted actually the there is more than just the save the planet side of this I mean that's obviously a really important side but actually from a business perspective there's huge benefits that can be had as well if you act on this suit so thank you very much for that and I think the the last thing to ask is for anyone who wants to get in touch with yourself find out more about the work you're doing on climate change uh, the work you're doing with Cambridge University where would you point them to where can they find you?
1: Well, uh, welcome to have my email address. I'm I'm happy to do that. I, wouldn't, I won't promise an instant response. It depends on how many people <laughs> contact me. But if I, if they don't hear back from me, it's not that I'm not interested. It just they tend to build up in my inbox and then I deal with them all in one go. So I promise I will respond to anybody who gets in touch with me.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'll put your email in the show notes so people can, can get in touch. And all that's left to say is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.